0: thanks
1: so much for joining us here for episode 448 with Ashley Goodall. Ashley is talking about the lies that are all around us in the workplace and what the truth is and where they come from and what to do about them. So it's an interesting chat. We'll talk about one, how deeply rooted misconceptions about work lead to inefficiency. Two, why you should focus on being spiky rather than well-rounded. And three, how systematization removes the human essence from work. So if you want to check out the show notes or the transcript or the links to items we've referenced, it's on over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash F448. Now here's Ashley's story. Ashley Goodall is currently Senior Vice President of Leadership and Team intelligent at Cisco. In this role, he has built a new organization focused entirely on serving teams and team leaders, combining talent management, succession, coaching, assessment, executive talent workforce and talent planning, research and analytics and technology all together to support leaders and their teams in real time. Previously, he was director and chief learning officer, leader development at Deloitte. He's the co-author with Marcus Buckingham of Reinventing Performance Management, the cover story in the April 2015 issue of the Harvard Business Review. He lives in Montclair, New Jersey, and he's got a great book that we're going to talk about called nine lies about work. So, thanks to Ashley for hanging out, and thanks to our sponsors. Check them out. Here's Ashley. Ashley, thanks so much for joining us here on the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast.
2: Hey, Pete, thanks for having me.
1: Well, I'm excited to dig into your book, Nine Lies About Work. But first, I want to hear a little about your musical talents and performances.
2: I started playing the piano when I was six years old. And it's one of those funny things that I can't remember very much of my mind as a six-year-old. But I remember pretty clearly that there was this thing in the front hall and it had keys and they made noise. And I wanted to play it. I wanted to learn how to make sound from it. And then that turned into playing, um, playing the violin. And then I found these things called symphony orchestras and they were fascinating. And so I took up the viola to be able to play in a symphony orchestra. And then after a while, I thought, well, there's this guy at the front waving his arms around. That looks some- like something I should give a go. That looks sort of interesting. So when I was an undergrad, I finished up conducting a couple of student symphony orchestras. And that led to, I suppose, a fascination with how people play together? I mean, literally, of course, how do musicians play together? Because while you have the the score, if you like, which tells you the sort of basic bits of the performance, there's a lot more to a performance than what's written in the notes. But also then, of course, more broadly in, in the world in which I've finished up in the world of work and leadership, how do people play together on teams? How do we play together at work? What is the essential magic that happens between a group of people when they get something done together. So I've the music sort of led into that fascination, which I think is is going to keep me going for years and years. And you've made a number of discoveries about how people play together when it comes to the
1: workplace, and you have documented those with your co-author Marcus Buckingham there in the book Nine Lies About Work. Uh, I, I'm so intrigued. Well, first, uh, what's maybe the most you know shocking or startling discovery you made as you were putting this
2: together? Well, and as of course the listeners can probably guess by the title, we we uncovered a lot of things which are problematic in the world of work. There was one, I don't know whether this is the most surprising or most fascinating, but it certainly was surprising and fascinating. Actually, it didn't make it directly into the book. So maybe this is a a fun nugget. It was too hot for Nine (laughs) Lies. Or maybe too geeky. Let me explain it first and then you can tell me. I came across this thing that I hadn't come across before called the extrinsic incentives bias. Now you tell me how exciting that sounds. Well,
1: I I guess it all depends on how we apply it.
2: (laughs) Right. And, And what it tells us, the researchers did a number of different experiments and the experiments always looked like you had to say, each subject had to say how they thought other people were motivated and then, or incentivized, and then say how they thought they were motivated or incentivized and the fascinating for me at least fascinating thing that comes out of this Mm -hmm. is time and time again people will go okay the other people Uh are motivated by extrinsic things other people are motivated by money by power by promotion by big titles extrinsic motivations i on the other hand i'm motivated by intrinsic things I'm motivated by learning, by growth, by making my mark on the world, by living my values. And this happens time and time again. Whenever they do the study, the more distant somebody is from me, the more I will believe that they are extrinsically motivated. Other people I believe are extrinsically motivated. I, however, am intrinsically motivated. Now, that might sound like that's just a sort of fascinating and weird asymmetry of human reasoning until you think about the world of work. Because we've designed the world of work in many ways on the assumption that those other people are extrinsically motivated. So we design bonus schemes and we design promotion schemes and we do an awful lot of things which overlook the fact that if we were designing it for ourselves... We would design a workplace that allowed us to grow as much as we can, that allowed us to express what we value the most, that allowed us to do the things that energize us the most. So weirdly enough, this bias, I think, actually explains a lot of what's wrong with the world of work in that we've designed it for what we think other people need, and we haven't designed it for what we need because we don't think that we are a good representative of the other people in the world, but actually we are.
1: Well, that, that's beautiful and worth thinking about for a good while. So, well, maybe could you line up a few of the top intrinsic motivators that, you know, uh, you <laughs> and by extension, just about everybody, uh, really respond to a lot?
2: Well, I think there's always something about, I want to do things I value, which is why purpose is so important. And, and talking about purpose and meaning is so important. But there's also something about, I I want to grow. I want to get better at what I do. And what that means is I don't, if there's a system at work that tells me, here's what you're not good at, I'm not nearly as interested in that system as I am a system, and by the way, the system very often is a human being, uh, a system that says, here's what I am, Here's where I'm powerful. Here's where I can increase my impact. If you think about work as a system of attention or as a system that's focused on individual growth or individual strengths or individual energy or the things that we have in ourselves that we are happy to contribute and, and motivated to contribute, so much of that is ignored by the way that we've, we've designed our world. It's, it's a little sad, I think.
1: Okay, well, well, so that's intriguing, and thank you for for sharing those. And, and so then I want to dig into you know some of these nine lies to get at least a little bit of the the overview of, of all of them, and then a little bit of depth on on a couple of them. So, but first of all, uh, why are we calling them lies? You know, they're not just uh, misconceptions or <laughs> or mistakes or boo boos, but lies. What's that about?
2: Well, they are held to be true very strongly by the world of work. And, and you know, we'll get into them in a second and your listeners will, will maybe hear what I mean. But let's pick one at random. The lie that people need feedback is very strongly believed in the world of work. Very, very strongly. So firstly, because they're strongly held to be true, we wanted a strong word to push back against them. Okay. The antidote to that is to call it a lie, not to just say, well, it's, you know, a little bit off. There's an old quote, and I'll have to find out where it's from, that uh, a lie gets halfway around the world before the truth has got its pants on. Mm -hmm. And so these things are lies very much in that sense, in that they zoom around, they don't get looked at particularly skeptically, they are almost universally accepted, and before anyone can clear their throat and say, well, hang on a second, the evidence points to a very different thing. All of a sudden, these things are halfway around the world, if you like. They're, they're the sort of fake news of work.
1: Okay. Well, so then let's dig into some of these lies. Maybe you could share with us first a, a quick overview in terms of what's the the lie and the antidote. You know, maybe a couple sentences for each, and then we'll, we'll, we'll have some fun
2: with our, our favorites. One of the ways I thought we could uh, quickly go through the lies is I'll read them out, and then I'll just turn each one into a sentence with because. And that uh, maybe won't reveal what the truth is, but it'll give maybe listeners a little insight into some of the things that we're we're talking about here.
1: It sounds like maybe you've done this before, Ashley.
2: Uh, well, <laughs> there has been a lot of conversation about these lies. So, um, but it, it's fun to think about different ways of sharing them. So we'll give this a go. And if you think uh, if if everyone thinks it's horrible, then I'll shut up. Okay. So line number one. It's a lie that people care which company they work for because work doesn't live in a company, it lives somewhere else. It's a lie that the best plan wins because plans move too slowly for the real world. Lie number three, it's a lie that the best companies cascade goals because people actually need to know the why of work more than the what. It is a lie that the best people are well-rounded because, well, have you looked at the best people? It's a lie that people need feedback because brains don't grow when they're threatened. It's a lie that people can reliably rate other people because evidence, an awful lot of it. It's a lie that people have potential because it doesn't exist. And at any rate, we should figure out how to invest in everybody, not just a select few. It's a lie that work-life balance matters most because balance is stasis and health, on the other hand, is motion. And actually, because of some other reasons, too, it's a lie that leadership is a thing because there aren't actually any leaders who have it. How about
1: that? Intriguing. So much to say here. All right. So let's jump into the best people are well-rounded. Tell us, uh, what are the best people, if not
2: well-rounded? Well, so, so what I just said was the best people are well-rounded because have you looked at the best people? And this is what's so interesting. So firstly, where does it come from?
1: It sounds like college admissions is what it reminds me of.
2: <laughs> yeah, we st- or maybe even earlier. I mean, I think we start this one in school. There's a classic experiment that researchers done where they go to parents and they say, your kid comes home with an A, a C, and an F. Which grade merits your most attention? Which one merits the most attention? And, of course, 75% of parents say, well, it's the F, isn't it? Now, the point is not that the F merits zero attention, but the question is which merits the most. The question for the hypothetical parent is, is your kid going to build a career on the back of the F turning into an E, or on the back of the A turning into an A star, if you like, or an A plus? Where is that kid going to make their way in the world? And, of course, it's never going to be by turning the F into the E. So, The F gets a bit of attention, but the A should get most attention. But yet, we've constructed the world of school in a sort of remedial way, which is to say that, and we do this at work too, of course, we we like to measure people against a number of different things. And then we say, well, the things you should focus on most are the things where you are most broken, if you like, where you you have the biggest deficits. Because then, by implication... You'll be good across the board because the best students are well-rounded and the best people are well-rounded and the best employees are well-rounded and the best team members are well-rounded. So whenever we encounter anything that starts off by saying, let's measure you against a, a number of different elements and then let's use the gaps as the motivation for your development, we are encountering this lie. That's what it looks like in practice. And funnily enough... We can do all of that without ever really pausing for very long to study the best people. And if you study people who are brilliant at what they do, you find out that they are the antithesis of well-rounded. They're not well-rounded. They're, in fact, spiky. There are a few things that they're brilliant at, and they've figured out how to make those things more and more and more powerful for them, which is to say that growth isn't really a question of adding ability where we don't have it it's a question more of adding impact growing impact where we already have ability now the example we give in the book of this is the is the soccer player Lionel Messi um, who is profoundly left-footed uses one foot over the other more than any other soccer player that we encountered in hundreds of hours of watching YouTube videos of people playing soccer and counting. That's what that's what author's
1: w- work is all about. Oh it was a
2: it was a labor of well, I don't know, it was a,
1: working hard, Ashley.
2: <laughs> it was hard to do until I discovered that YouTube has a slow motion button, at which point it got a lot easier. But anyway, you watch Lionel Messi and it's all left foot. Left foot, left foot, left foot, left foot, left foot. Now, if you lived in well rounded land, you would say, Lionel, oh my God, we've got to work on your right foot a little bit. You're only using the left. What's with that? You'll be predictable. The defenders will know that you're always going to go left, you're always going to go left, and you're giving up half the possibility, so you're making it twice as easy to tackle you. That's not what he does. He hones and hones and hones his left foot until it is the most brilliant weapon, arguably, in the world of soccer today. The defenders still know that he's going with his left foot. He's just so good at it that they still can't stop him. And the lesson from that is that excellence is really, really spiky. It's a few things done brilliantly well, not a whole bunch of things made sort of all well-rounded and and rounded over—that's not what the best people look like at all.
1: And now, when we talk about an example of a spike, so the left foot, you know, is is one. Uh, could you give us some more? Because I, I think, in a way, some people would say, "Oh, well, mine is my communication skills," but, but that kind of sounds pretty broad in, in terms of a uh, a strength or a, or a spike or of, of excellence. So, uh, could you maybe give us some examples of uh, particular spikes so so we can get our arms around? What are we talking
2: about here in terms of how narrow versus broad a spike is? Yeah, and you're good to call that out. I mean, it's a a sort of good test. If you think your spike is the sort of thing you would find on a competency model or a development plan, you haven't defined it nearly precisely enough. Okay.
1: So even if we got a corn fairy, what are we at? 37 nowadays in the latest one?
2: I try not to look, to be honest. That's another whole rant. But (laughs) if it's a thing on a competency model, if it's communication skills or political savvy or strategic thinking, and you say, that's my spike, you are not nearly precise enough to be able to build on it. I'll give you a few from leaders in history. Maybe that's an interesting place because we all know these people. If you think about Kennedy, JF Kennedy, his spike was making the future a morally uplifting place for all of us. All right. Okay, that's not on any competency model. You don't mm-hmm. get feedback on making the future a morally uplifting place for all of us. If you look at Winston Churchill, His spike was being incredibly stubborn. That's not a thing on a competency model.
1: Never, never, never give up.
2: (laughs) That doesn't show up at all. If you look at Churchill as a strategic thinker, he wasn't actually very good. He got chucked out of government in the 20s and 30s because none of his plans worked particularly well. But there came a moment where... Britain needed somebody to stand their ground and they found the guy who was probably the world's most stubborn person and he was brilliant at being stubborn and of course it was more than just saying no it was inspiring resistance but i think stubbornness is somehow at the heart of that so you might then go well how do i how do i articulate what my spike is and it's a process at least it has been for me of thinking about where am I most energized and what do I always run towards? That's, if you like, a strength. What are the things I would do if I weren't paid to do them anyway? And then you have to hone it. Under what circumstances? What does it get used for? Does it matter if you're doing it with in this context or in this context? And it's a process of self-reflection and self-observation until you can write a sentence that says, this is a spike of mine and... You'll know if you've got it specific because it won't feel like something that anyone else in the world could particularly have.
1: And so, Ashley, what's yours? Or do you have a couple? How many spikes do we get?
2: (laughs) Mine is looking out into a messy future and explaining to the rest of the world what I see clearly. All right. And again, that's specific. There's not a model that says that. And if you were coaching me, you would never say from a standing start, well, Ashley, Mm -hmm. let's talk about looking out into a messy future and explaining to the world what you see clearly. That's not a sentence anyone ever says. But, if you look at the at the book I've written with Marcus, my goodness me it is a an extended essay in looking out into the messy future and trying to explain what we together see clearly, so it does show up in places well
1: that's good and and do you think that we as humans professionals have one, two, three spikes? What do you think?
2: I don't know. I think it's not fifteen, and it's probably not six either. Most It's interesting when it gets to leadership because actually there's a connection between these spikes and leadership. It turns out what happens in the world of leadership is that people hook onto your spikes. That's what they see. The spikes help them feel better about the world that they're facing and they, they know what you're going to stand for and where you're going to go. When you look at leaders, most leaders with any sort of renown, you come down to more or less one spike now, that might just be because we're seeing them from a distance. So we see the one that's the most powerful. And maybe wow. there are another couple of things going on there as well. But as I say, I don't think it's sex. Okay, that's helpful. Thank you.
1: Intriguing. So uh, now let's talk about the the feedback picture. So what's the story here?
2: There is an awful lot of conversation in the world about how to give people feedback. Recently, it's taken a little turn for the sort of, I don't know, the chest thumping, if you like. We have to give people radical feedback, and we have to be super candid, and we have to be unvarnished, and all these words that somehow make this an exercise in macho truth-telling, which is just weird. I think we should just call it weird. But behind that is this ongoing question of, well, what's the best way to give somebody feedback? And what's presumed in that, of course, is that giving people feedback is the best way to help them grow. Now, by feedback, what I mean is, uh, and it's worth clarifying, when I, when I say feedback, I mean the sort of standard approach where it says, you did this, I would have done this, or you should have done it this way, or it's where I tell you what I think of your performance. That's what we could call feedback, right? And... We're spending a lot of time saying, well, what's the best way to do that? And should it be 360? And should it be anonymous? And should it be on your phone? And how frequently should it happen? And how radically candid the whole thing should be. But if you actually ask the underlying question, how do people best grow? You find out that as soon as a brain feels threatened, as soon as a brain feels that judgment is about to arrive, it measurably shuts down. It goes into fight or flight mode. And that's not the mode of brain system, if you like. That's not the brain system where neurological connections get made at a biological level. If someone feels threatened, they stop learning. And if you read the research on this, the researchers actually say that that brain state is best described as impairment. So in all our efforts to help people grow, we're actually impairing their learning. So that should give us pause. Then you say, well, as we've just been talking about, gosh, the best people are, are spiky and the spikes are different from one person to the next. So it's very difficult for me to tell you how you should move towards excellence because your version of excellence will be different from mine. And I can't possibly guess what's going on inside you, what your definition of your spike or your growing edge might be. So that makes it a little bit difficult. And then thirdly, you look at the science on learning and you discover that learning is actually an emergent thing. I can't force you. I can't compel you to learn. What I can do is give you some ingredients when your brain is ready to hear them. And from time to time, you'll find a different way of assembling with some input from me or, or mainly input from you. And you'll go, oh, right. Oh, that. But that moment is not what I told you to learn. It's you figuring out an insight for yourself. So learning is actually an emergent property. So given that, given that I'm a horrible judge of other people, which is you know another thing the science is very clear on. So I can't judge you. You learn idiosyncratically. Your excellence is idiosyncratic. And the second I start telling you, how to do something and you perceive that as any sort of a threat, your brain shuts down. That would mean that a lot of this feedback isn't achieving an awful lot. It's okay for risk mitigation where you're not worried about learning, you're not worried about yeah. growth, you're worried about don't do that because it will cause harm. Okay. Yeah. That's one case where we can go, yes. By all means, tell people how to do it differently. Just don't expect them to learn a lot. Don't expect them to get anything above adequate at the task you're talking about because brains don't work that way. And then you find, okay, if we're no longer in the getting to adequate business, but we're in the fostering excellence business, what should we do given all of this? And what we should do is give people our attention to what works really well. We should help them realize and reflect on their moments of excellence so that they can build on those patterns in their brain and make them more pronounced and more powerful. What that looks like in a nutshell is that when we say to somebody, good job, we think today that's the end of the conversation, right? Good job means you did it great. Well done. It's not a risk for me because you're good at that. So I'll go back to figuring out where your next going to fall down and giving you all sorts of constructive, as I suppose we call it, or negative feedback. But in fact, good job is the beginning of a conversation. And the conversation continues something like this. You start by sharing your reaction. Okay, so Pete, good job. The thing that you just, the way that you phrased that question really captured something important for me. Now then, where did that come from? What were you thinking? Have you asked a question like that before? Could you take the thought that led to that question and inform different questions with it? Could you do that again is essentially what I'm asking. If I do that for you, some of the time a little spark will go off in your brain and you will go, oh, yes, I could do it again. It would look like this. Or I could do it over here. Or I could do it maybe when I'm not asking questions, but when I'm writing. Or I could do it here. Or I could do it here. Or I could do it here. And lo and behold, you have growth. And you have growth towards excellence, not merely remediation towards adequacy. So people don't need feedback. People need attention.
1: Okay, certainly. And so then if, if you are in a,
2: a spot where
1: you know, something needs to be corrected, what do you do? What you
2: do is you talk about facts, steps, and outcomes. Oh, i tell you more. So very easy to say, hey, uh, blah, 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 you did that. Perhaps you didn't know about this fact perhaps you didn't know about this thing, which is a factual thing in the world, you can always point that out. Maybe you hadn't read this research paper when you wrote that article, something like that. So you can always say that. When you have a, a process with a series of defined steps, there's a series of defined steps, for example, for taking off in an airplane or for giving a safe injection and somebody misses a step, then by all means you can say, oh my goodness me, you missed a step. These are the required steps. Don't miss that step again. You will create risk. And that's why, of course, we have checklists in the world, and two of the places we have checklists are in operating rooms and in airplane cockpits, because if you miss a step, you're in trouble. Most of the world of work, certainly the world of knowledge work, by the way, isn't like an operating theatre or a cockpit in that there isn't a prescribed list of steps that everyone would agree to. So the facts and steps things are a little limited, but it's worth just saying that those are real things. And then the other one is the most effective way I've found to remediate performance is to say you missed on the outcome. The outcome we were after was, I don't know, to close the deal. And you didn't close the deal. Let's talk about why. Now, in that you're still remediating, but at least you are trying to talk about not here's what's wrong with you through my eyes, which will get you, believe me, nowhere at all. But at (laughs) least instead you're trying to say, we missed, you missed, let's explore. You don't get a lot of growth by doing that because as soon as you just to somebody you missed the outcome, their brain is already trying to get out the door pretty quickly. But you can at least come up with a plan for not missing again. And so what you get is, of course the deal might close next time. What you don't get is, is it a great deal? As I said, there's a difference between adequate performance and and great performance. You don't create a transporting piece of writing by fixing the grammar, which is not mm-hmm. to say that you can't fix the grammar and that you shouldn't fix the grammar, but it is to say there's a big difference in the real world between getting the basics down and real unique excellence. Well said.
1: All right. Thank you. Well, well, tell me, Ashley. So given that uh, these lies are around and they are pervasive, if you are, say, uh, a rank and file professional, maybe you don't have any direct reports or, or just a couple, uh, what do you think are some of the, the top things that we should start doing right now that could help us get better results at work,
2: given that these lies are all over the place? Yeah, I'll, I'll give you the, the one that's absolutely top of the list for me the whole time, which is get really fluent about your strengths. Get specific, get detailed. There are a couple of things that sort of lead us to that, if you like. The first is that no one else really cares about you as much as you care about you. No one else really cares about your strengths. And by strengths, I don't mean what you're good at. I mean, what energizes you, what gives you, what you run towards, No one else really cares about that as much as you do, and no one else is going to do the work for you. And anyway, nobody else can because they can't see inside your head and they can't see how it feels to be engaged in an activity when time is flying by and you can't wait to do it again. So firstly, no one will do it for you. Secondly, we are very strangely, and to my mind, sadly... Much more specific about our weaknesses, about the things that drain the living daylights out of us, than we are about our strengths. It's a sort of oddity of the way we're put together as people, I think. And the example, of course, is if you say to somebody, Name an activity that drains you. Most people will think for four seconds and then talk for about three minutes. And the three minutes is a rant. Oh my goodness me! When they make me fill in this form, and then this has to happen, and this happened, I hate that. I'm, I'm, and they can give you enormous detail. They can tell you precisely when it last happened. They can tell you exactly what they what drains them about it. And then you say, okay, very good. Tell me about what strengthens you. What what lifts you up. And a lot of the time, people will lean back in a chair and they'll smile and they go, you know what? It's people. I'm a people person, Mm -hmm. and that is woefully inadequate. Which people? Where? What are they doing? What are you doing? What's your relationship with the people? Are the people professional people? Are they family people? Is it at work? Is it outside work? Do you know them? Are you reaching out to them for the first time? Are you forming long-lasting relationships with a few people? Are you forming light-touch relationships with hundreds and hundreds of people? Which people? Not I'm a people person. More, more, more. Because until you know those answers for for yourself, you can't do anything with them. And no one else, as I said, no one else is going to do it for you. So the piece of advice I would give for anyone in any walk of life is get really, really specific about the activities that give you joy, the activities that you love, because on that will be built with luck and with effort, a great career and a great life. But if you don't know what those building blocks are, you can't get there from vagueness. It won't work. If you're going to find your winning edge, you need to get really specific about what it is that lifts you up. Beautiful. Thank you.
1: And is there anything that you recommend professionals? stop doing. You know, they just cut it out right now.
2: We over-rotate. I mean, it's the it's the, the flip side of what we were just talking about. We over-rotate on weaknesses and we beat ourselves up about not necessarily the things that, in the proper sense, the things that drain us, but certainly things we can't do very well. We can sometimes obsess over these and get very, very focused on trying to make ourselves more well-rounded, if you like. But you only have to think that in humankind, there are probably thousands and millions of things that a human being can do. And most of us suck at most of them. (laughs) Right. We tend to go all sort of narrow. But if you think about, you know, when I think about the things I can't do, goodness me, metalwork, field hockey, also ice hockey, paragliding. I can't paint. There's an enormously long list of things that I can't do. I can't ride a motorcycle. I can't speak Chinese. My Latin is very remedial these days. Okay, the the list of things I can't do is infinity things long, practically. The list of things I can do is very few. So I'd better not spend my whole time wallowing in, I can't do this and 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 I can't do this. Because that's not where a career and a life is to be forged. Those are the wrong, raw ingredients to start with. We come into the world with certain patterns of thought and behavior. And those only become more pronounced over our lives. They don't change very much. They just get more and more clearly defined. And the question is, are you accelerating the definition of yours or not? And the place to start, therefore, is what are my patterns of behavior and thought? What do I run towards, as I've said? um, Not what are some of the millions of things I can't do. Uh So it's not that where I don't have a skill, I shouldn't ever bother acquiring it. But it's that I shouldn't hook my future to things that seem very distant from my current field of endeavor. And I shouldn't say that that's the most important thing for me to focus on. The most important thing for me to focus on is what works and how can I do it more? Mm, Yes, thank you.
1: You know, Ashley, I'd love to get your take. So we had an overview of the nine lies. We had some depth on a couple of them. Would you say there is an, an overarching theme or kind of underlying set of forces that draw these all together like like what do the nine lies have in common other than that they're all over the place and that they're wrong
2: there is and it's i think it's been sort of hovering around our conversation today pete and it's got a couple of i suppose a couple of angles we tend to focus particularly in in the workplace we tend to focus on what doesn't work and we miss giving at least as much attention or properly much more attention to what does work so we've sort of got the, the world of human prospering and human flourishing, we've sort of got it backwards. And the other thing that runs through the lies very, very strongly is that we think that human individuality is a bug, not a feature. We think that human diversity is something to be rounded out, something to be made to conform This is why we cascade goals so that everybody's singing off the same songbook, if you like. This is why we round people out. This is why we give people feedback against the prescribed model. This is why we we sort people into categories of potential or not. We're trying to put people in buckets. We're trying to make people conform. We're we're looking for one size fits all. And as a result, we lose sight of humans at work, which is deeply ironic because humans is all there is at work. But we lose sight of it, and we lose sight of the beautiful and precious fact that what we prize most about the people we share the planet with is not how they're the same as us, it's how they're different. It's what they add that we can't do. It's what they see that we don't see. And the world of work, I think, as described through these nine lies, the world of work is, in its funny sort of way, annoyed by that frustrated by that wouldn't it be much easier if all the people were interchangeable if they were all the same or at least if we could describe their differences in a list of eight competencies and then we could measure you all up against that and we could decide whether you're an a b c d and e and f g and we could treat you like that it's wrong on the evidence it's not useful according to the science and it's also in some way immoral So I think the book, if you like, is a plea to get back to a world where we appreciate the local, the local team. We appreciate the weirdness of other people and the wonderful weirdness of other people. And we put the human beings back in work because we've lost them. This
1: is kind of reminding me of Henry Ford had a
2: Famous quotation, and I might
1: not nail it, but it was something like, "Why is it when I hire a pair of hands, I have to get a a brain and a mouth, or as well, or something like that?" You know, in terms of, look, I've got a great system here, so just don't mess with it. Don't don't bring your personality and your ideas and all of your complicated humanity into the equation, because that just makes uh, my job more difficult, and I just want to see my system run and, and get things cranked out the other side. And in a way, that's kind of the whole industrial revolution in action.
2: You're exactly right, and that's, that's almost where it begins. I mean, by the time you've thought about Taylorism and you thought about Henry Ford, they're all around about the same era, and there was almost an explicit attempt to purge the humanness from work. And yet you look at work today and, you know, most of us aren't making cars step by step by step. Most of us aren't, uh, you know, at the Bethlehem coal factory, wherever it was that Taylor was counting people moving wheelbarrows of coal backwards and forwards. That's not most work for most people most of the time. We are talking about a world where our edge at work is innovation and creativity and collaboration across enormous complexity using technologies that are more and more and more complex and sophisticated and incomprehensible by any single person and all around the world with people we sometimes know very well and sometimes we hardly meet at all. You can't thrive in that if you think that the essence of a human being is a problem, not in fact the only thing that you have going for you. Beautiful. Thank you.
1: Well, well, Ashley, tell me, any key things you want to mention before we quickly hear about a couple of your favorite things?
2: Gosh, I think we've covered a lot. I suppose the one thing maybe we didn't talk about a lot is where do these lies come from? And it, you know, it's interesting to talk about Ford and talk about Taylor. Some of the other lies start out as a small good thing, which then turns into a big bad thing when we make it into a system. So I suppose there's a one of the morals of the book might be beware of systematizing stuff. And when anyone comes to you and says, can we scale that, be very, very cautious, because sometimes in scaling something, you wring the human essence out of it altogether. The best example I can think of that's in the book is this idea of goals. And of course, we're all very familiar with goals, and we've all had the experience where we set ourselves a goal about something we want to do, and it's very helpful And so you go, all right, goals. If I set one for myself voluntarily, that's a useful way of expressing how I want to get stuff done in the world and what I value. But then, of course, what we do is we go, well, if it's good for one, it's good for many, and we'll turn it into a goal cascade. And all of a sudden, you'll be told to set goals, and you'll also be told what sorts of things go in them. Mm -hmm. And in taking the, the beautiful, precious thing of, Ashley and Marcus set out to write a book because they felt they needed to express some ideas in the world. And turning that into, there's a great big cascaded goal system and Ashley's down at the bottom of it and he's got to fill in a form. You lose everything that is valuable about the first sort of goal by turning into a sort of cascaded goal. And there are other examples of the book in the book, of things that start out really small and really local and beautiful and well intentioned. But then by the time we've turned them into a system, we've taken all the goodness out. Thank you. Well, now could you
1: share with us a favorite quote, something you find inspiring?
2: I came across this one years ago. And uh, if you hear rustling, I'm just going to grab my my book of Richard Feynman. And Richard Feynman, as I'm sure your listeners will know, Nobel Prize winning physicist, but also towards the very end of his life, was asked to participate in the inquiry into the the Challenger disaster, the Space Shuttle Challenger. And as he went through the inquiry and he pushed deeper and deeper into the workings of NASA at the time, he found a lot of cases where people were assuming that something would work a particular way because they really wanted it to. And Hmm. they were turning away from the evidence and were sort of buying their own PR, if you like. When the Challenger report was published, he asked to write his own appendix which people can go look up today. And if anyone is after a wonderful, wonderful, super rational, detailed, humble, evidence-based analysis of something that's happened in the world, go and read Richard Feynman's appendix to the Challenger report. And he ends it with a sentence that I have always adored. For a successful technology, he says, reality must take precedence over public relations for nature cannot be fooled nature cannot be fooled It connects to some of the ideas in the book because what what we're trying to do is we're going to is we're saying look this is what the evidence is and the evidence doesn't care whether you believe it or not the 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 facts (laughs) don't care whether anyone believes in them they're just going to hang around being facts nature will not be fooled so if we're smart we figure out what's knowable about the world and build on that we set aside our misconceptions And we reject the lies. Thank you. And how about a favorite tool? Something you use to be awesome at your job? I have for years and years and years, I've used a particular propelling pencil. How funny is that? Propelling? A propelling pencil, you know, an automatic pencil. Okay. And I got it a few years ago when I annotate a document, which I do a lot when I'm writing. I like to scribble on it by hand and... For some reason, I've always liked to do that in pencil. It feels to me a little less judgmental mm-hmm. than ink. And not reading. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Uh, pencils work on planes. Pencils don't explode in your pocket if you take them on a plane. So they're practical. But I've just always loved this particular pencil. And actually, the, the one I have right now is the second identical one I had because I lost one. And... I lost one on a trip, and the second I got home, I went straight to the store and just bought exactly the same pencil again, because I can't live without it. So there you go, my automatic pencil.
1: Well, you've got me so intrigued. What is the the make and model of this pencil?
2: Well, it is, I think it's German or Swiss. It's Graf von Faber-Castell, and it is just this little beautiful, (laughs) it's a good question for a podcast, isn't it? How would Mm. you describe a pencil to somebody who can't see it? And hmm. so far I've managed to say it's a pencil and it's silver and it's awesome <laughs> and it's propelling and it, it's uh Swiss or German. I don't know. I mean, I guess we'll finish up being lame and saying, well, look it up online, but oh, we'll link to it. Certainly. That's the one that fits my hand. I like the weight. It works beautifully and I can't live without it.
1: Okay. And tell me if folks want to learn more or get in touch, where'd you point them?
2: So, if they're interested in the book, the book is available on Amazon right now or anywhere books are sold. If they want to connect with me, I'd love to connect with anybody on, on LinkedIn. And there's a bunch of us having a whole bunch of fun and debate over there on some of the ideas that we've talked about today.
1: And do you have a final challenge or a call to action for folks seeking to be awesome at their jobs?
2: My final challenge would be don't short sell you. You're awesome figure out how to share that with the world because we need you to.
1: Ashley, thank you. This has been such a treat. I wish you lots of luck with your book, The Nine Lies About Work, and all your other
2: adventures. Pete, thanks so much.
1: I really appreciated what Ashley had to say about the spikes. And I was thinking, well, geez, what's mine? And, and I think it really pays to really stop and think about it for a while. And I came up with, I believe my spike is, and maybe there's one or two or three or four, not six, he says, is is something along the lines of discovering and exploiting underappreciated opportunities by noticing a tiny something that strikes me as having huge implications that others don't notice or care about or question or dig into with enough consistent effort to realize. Yes, I I wrote that down in advance because I was really thinking about this. And so, what that feels like in practice and in experiences is, is I I hear something that's like a fact. I observe something and then I go, Holy smokes, are you serious? Oh my gosh. Well, if that's true, then this has extreme implications. I could do this, 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 this. So, for example, one time in college, I was talking with my buddy Connor. Someone mentioned that a belly laughter or an hour of belly laughter is worth four hours of sleep or, or something like that. And, and so, I immediately thought, hmm, that's really interesting. If that's true, then I could hire someone to tickle me for two hours instead of sleeping in the middle of the night and use some of the other hours to do something that earns money to pay my tickler and come out ahead economically, as well as get some other stuff done that I really like to if I can display sleep. And Connor just laughed and said, it's ridiculous that that is how your brain works. <laughs> and I was like, well, but of course, is that what everybody's thinking when they hear about this tickling fact? That is not true with regard to laughter that was taken for the context of some Someone who was in uh, intense pain. And so laughter enabled him to have some release of pain in the hospital so he could sleep better. So that was the context of that quote. It's not applicable for us. The the tickling hiring option is not so handy. Or once I was at Podcast Movement and there was uh, a vendor of a podcast app and I saw on there, it listed how many subscribers to each podcast they have through their app. And I said, Oh my gosh, well, if that's true, then of course I can use that and find a multiplier associated with how many podcast listeners are in your app associated with all podcast apps everywhere to you know, find that. Oh, is it by multiply your number by 20? And I've got a rough number of how many podcast listeners a given podcast has. And then I could use that to help me, you know, think about and prioritize some, some relationship building, you know, in, in terms of other podcasters and appearing onto the shows and, and get some good stuff going. And so I don't think anybody else who <laughs> who noticed this this app had that thought, but I sure did. it's been pretty helpful and a number of you I see from the survey came to discover the show because I was on another show. so that's awesome we We have that spike to thank and in that exchange. so anywho? Enough about me. Think about your spike. I think it's quite helpful to get real clear on it and see, are, are there more opportunities for you to deploy that in more places? So again, the show notes, the transcript, the links to items we've referenced are at awesomeatyourjob.com slash F448. If you haven't already, I hope you'll push subscribe. You'll catch our next guest. It's Marissa Orr. She's the author of Lean Out. It is some counterpoints to Lean In, and it's quite fascinating. So I hope to catch you there.